Andrew here, just cutting in quickly before your podcast episode today to remind you that Radiopedia 2024, our virtual conference, is coming up this July 22 to 26. There's going to be lectures, case workshops, panel discussions, round-the-clock live streams, enhanced on-demand playback, including scrollable case images. It's free for Radiopedia all-access pass holders and in 125 low- and middle-income countries. There's tiered pricing for everyone else to promote uh, equitable global access, and there are even AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Uh, Anyway, you should definitely register, and I'll see you all online this July. Welcome once again into the Radiopedia reading room for another week, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It's about the reading of radiology. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, he's lipid rich and he washes out, it's my co-host, Frank Gaylar. Oh, Dixon, I'm pretty sure there's a thinly veiled insult in there somewhere. I'm not sure it's even that thinly veiled. <laughs> no, I'm just saying you're not you're not very malignant, mate. <laughs> uh, today we have another readful episode, Frank. So mm-hmm. our podcast regular Matt Morgan will be reading. I love that we're only at episode 17 and we already have regulars. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's been on a few times, I think. That's true. You know, he's got the he's dulcet great. tones. He's perfect. So he's going to read our adrenal adenoma article to his University of Pennsylvania abdominal imaging colleague, Dr. Evan Siegelman, uh, who's an expert in this area. The article is titled Adrenal Adenoma, but for all intents and purposes, Frank, it's it's about the incidental adrenal lesion. So that's uh-huh. what we're going to be talking about and learning about. It's a readful, Frank. So do you know what yeah. that means? Uh, that you're going to have some other novel way of publicly humiliating me? That's right. It's time for the pre-quiz. What do we call it? We call it Spot the Fake, All right, our favorite segment. So I'm going to read to you three statements about incidental adrenal lesions, yep. and you need to try and work out which is the fake. Oh, boy. All I know is that under 10 Hounsfield units, it's an adenoma. So let's see how Ooh. we go. On non-contrast CT. Well done. That's that's good. There you go. So if it's one of those. No, that's not one of the three facts, I'm afraid. <laughs> All right. So statement number one, when measuring Hounsfield units in an adrenal lesion, your ROI, region of interest, should cover two thirds of it and exclude calcifications and the periphery. Well, exclude calcifications and the periphery. Yep. That should be right. Whether it's two thirds, 50%, 75, who knows, but you wouldn't be that petty to pull me up on that. So I'm going to go true for that one. Yeah. Well, maybe listen to all three first before you decide, mate. Okay. Mm. Number two, an absolute washout of greater than 60% on 15-minute delayed phase CT is suggestive of adrenal adenoma. However, pheochromocytomas and hypervascular metastases, particularly RCC and HCC METs, may show identical washout values. Uh-huh. <laughs> and statement number three, an incidental adrenal lesion with Hounsfield units above 50 on non-contrast CT would be better investigated with chemical shift MRI to look for signal dropout than it would be with dynamic post-contrast CT. So hmm. right, which of those do you reckon is false? So you reckon the first hmm. one's true? Yeah, I think the false. The, the first one's true. The, the second one has so many bits and pieces to it that you could make any one of those wrong, like 60%, 15 <laughs> That's minutes. how I like to write them. <laughs> the, the last one feels like one that I should be able to work out even though I don't know anything. And so if it's got a density of over 50, that means it can't have a lot of fat in it, even microscopic mm-hmm. fat, because that would still lower 
uh, the voxel value for each one on CT. And so if it doesn't have a lot of fat in it, maybe it's not going to work out on chemical shift. So so which one's the fake, mate? I'm going to say three is is the fake. All right. Well, I'm going to reveal that number one is true. So you've done okay. well there. Yay for me. All right. So now knowing that number one is true, you're going to stick with number three as being the fake. Oh, you're doing yeah. a Monty Hall problem on me. <laughs> yeah. Don't try and Monty it. Hall me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. For those who don't know, I remember this from from the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. You know that book? Oh, um, yeah. They spoke about, you know, so imagine you're on a game show and there's three doors, right? And behind one of the doors, there's a, uh, let's say, a Toyota Corolla for those people who like the Auntie Donna show. So there's a Toyota Corolla behind one of the doors and you, Frank, you select one of the doors. So which one do you want? Door one, two or three, Frank? One. You select door number one. And so me as the game show host, I reveal that door number two does not have our Toyota Corolla behind it. And then I ask you again, you've selected door number one, would you like to stick with that or would you like to change? Now, intuitively, most people think, well, I've got a one in three chance at the start and now I've still got a one in three chance. But the actual answer is that there is statistically better odds if you do change your decision at this point. You definitely should. But I'm not sure it applies to, to this situation. No, not when you've got pre-knowledge, when you've actually got yes. some knowledge in the area. But if it was, yeah, complete random chance. Yeah. But it sounds weird, doesn't it, that, you know, it's a one in three chance, he reveals one of the doors and then you're like, well, actually, I'll yeah. swap now. Thank you very much. It kind of yeah. doesn't, intuitively, it's it's difficult, but definitely statistically it works out that way. Two-thirds chance if you swap. Yeah. yeah, because the thing is that the host has applied some background knowledge because he's not going to reveal the door that had the Toyota Corolla behind it that's right the host had a two in three chance of having the corolla right yeah that's why you should change but i'm not going to change because i am contrary by nature and i'm going to stick with number three being fake i reckon we're going to get emails about this i don't understand why would you change (laughs) next episode monty hall revisited (laughs) i'm not going to reveal the answer now gala we're going to find out if you've won the toyota corolla after we listen into this readful episode with matt morgan and evan siegelman about adrenal adenomas all right. Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Matt Morgan from the University of Pennsylvania. Let's see who I have here with me today. Why, it's Dr. Evan Siegelman from the University of Pennsylvania as well. Hello there, Matt. So you were known as a body guru within the department here. I don't know. Is guru the right word? They call me Uncle Evan. Uncle Evan is good. <laughs> yeah. Then what should we talk about today? How about uh, adrenal adenomas? Sound good? That sounds great. Excellent. So this is a readful podcast. So I'm going to read out the article and we're going to have Evan comment on it. We can get all of Evan's wisdom about adrenal adenomas as we go through our time. And I'm accessing the article on May 5th, 2023. Cinco de Mayo. So let's start out here. Adrenal adenomas. Adrenal adenomas, alternative plural adenomata. They are the most common adrenal lesion and are often found incidentally during abdominal imaging for other reasons. In all cases, but especially in the setting of known current or previous malignancy, adrenal adenomas need to be distinguished from adrenal metastases or other adrenal malignancies. Terminology section. The term incidental adrenal lesion slash nodule, also colloquially known as an incidentaloma, is sometimes used interchangeably with adrenal adenoma, although in truth, and an incidental adrenal lesion includes all pathologies, including malignancies. So as such, the term should be avoided 
lest it results in confusion. It depends on the imaging modality where we initially detect it, right? I mean, I guess this is foreshadowing, but if we can actually show the presence of lipid on chemical shift imaging, or depending on your cutoff, if on an unenhanced CT examination, we have a Hounsou that's, let's say, less than 10, I think sometimes we actually can specifically characterize an incidentaloma as an adrenal adenoma. Indeed, that is wonderful foreshadowing for what we are going to get into here today. Let's talk a little more about the adenomas themselves and epidemiology. So we have a nice, succinct one sentence of epidemiology here, and it tells us that adrenal adenomas are found in almost all age groups, but increase in frequency with age. It does, yes. There's also an association note here, and something that I actually didn't recognize, and that is that adrenal adenomas are associated with MEN type 1. The other things with MEM type 1 being pituitary adenomas, parathyroid hyperplasia, and pancreatic tumors. But, you know, whenever I think of adrenal lesions with MEN, I think of MEN 2A and 2B, where you can get uh, pheochromocytomas. I didn't really think of MEN type 1 being associated with adenomas. Right. But there is that association, yes. All right. So let's move on to clinical presentation. So the majority, about 95%, of adrenal adenomas are non-functioning in which case they are asymptomatic. If found incidentally, please refer to the Management of Incidental Adrenal Masses American College of Radiology white paper. And Evan, do you tend to use the, the white paper? I, I guess I just used uh, my gut instinct. We, we'll sort of get into some of that here. It just as a other question here, how frequently do you end up using online resources when you report? Is that something you end up using a fair amount? I use Radiopedia, I use Google. Um, sometimes I actually place references into my reports. And uh, let's be honest, the internet is our ectopic brain. So <laughs> you can't know everything. So um, we definitely do use it. And the other thing, I guess the shout out just for templates, right? So we have a, a template for pyrads and lyrads so we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we're reading, a, you know, for example, a potential uh, man with prostate cancer. So I think that makes us better radiologists by having the uh, templates already auto-populated so we can go through the findings. But yeah, every day I, I go and use the internet for resources and references. Let's keep going here. So in clinical presentation, patients with hyperfunctioning adrenal gland adenomas present with manifestations of excess hormone secretion. The most common disease states caused by functioning adenomas are Cushing syndrome, due to excess cortisol production, Kahn syndrome, due to excess aldosterone production, or sex hormone-related symptoms. Have you uh, come across these kinds of syndromes during the day-to-day readouts? In a sense, I rarely look for the sex hormone-related symptoms, but all the time, I, you know, I look and I encourage my trainees to look to see if the patient has hypertension. Because, you know, the two, as it states here, the two most common are Cushing and Kahn syndrome. So if you have a normotensive patient, you have essentially excluded a hyperfunctioning etiology of the adrenal incinoloma in terms of adrenal cortical hyperfunction. So, uh, yeah, I have a very low threshold for looking at patients' medications to see if they have high blood pressure. So we're done with the clinical presentation part. But before we move into radiographic features, I thought I might ask you, a question about yourself. Do you listen to music while you report? Um, I do not. I don't know why. Maybe I'm old school, but I think whatever parts of my brain that I use for diagnostic image and interpretation and reporting, I don't think I have enough gray matter, white matter left over to do anything else. 
Now, granted, other aspects of my life, if I'm doing the dishes, uh, then I can multitask and actually listen to music, usually stuff that I know very well, so it like, sits in the background. But otherwise, unfortunately, I've been known to ask a particular resident to maybe plug in their headphones because I, I can't tolerate listening to Donnie Marie while uh, while reading out body MRI cases. <laughs> I have the same sort of issue. Like I notice that whenever I'm listening to music, my mind just focuses on the music, and it's very hard for me to like break away. All right, so let's move on to the meat of the topic here, and that is the radiographic features. Imaging plays a key role in assessing the vast number of incidental adrenal lesions the majority of which are adrenal adenomas. So correlation with previous imaging is often useful as a lesion which has not changed over some years is unlikely to be malignant. You know, I think that's a really excellent point, which is sometimes overlooked. Like if you actually look at the ACR white paper, they're suggesting is that if a nodule has been stable for one year, you can let it go. It's sort of like half the amount of time you would think of for like a pulmonary nodule. Usually we give those two years and you consider them benign with adrenal nodules is one year and if it was malignant, it probably would have grown. It's much, much, much more cost-effective, right, to use the retrospectoscope than it is to have the patient come back. So I'm very, very vigilant in trying to check if we have old studies or, you know, as our EMR, the electronic medical record, gets more sophisticated, getting access to the old reports and or old images to document lack of interval change. But there are articles that suggest that's right. Uh, growth rate of adenomas is much less than that of uh, malignancies but they can grow and we're going to come back to that. Yes. So let's move on to general features. So general features of adrenal adenomas. So they can be divided into those with a typical or an atypical appearance. So your typical adenoma is small, less than three centimeters. It's round or ovoid, and it's homogeneous with low density and smooth borders. And atypical would be an adenoma with hemorrhage, calcification, necrosis, a lack or a paucity of fat. Paucity. I love that. It's such a great radiology word. Don't you think paucity? Do you have you ever used paucity yes. elsewhere in your life? <laughs> I, I can't think I've ever used paucity except in a radiology report. Agree. Do you have any particular favorite radiology words or phrases that you like to work into everyday conversation? Uh, detritus. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> it's probably one of them. Yes. Um, so we're talking about lack or paucity of fat. And then the last atypical feature is a large adenoma. So if an adenoma is over four centimeters, well, actually, you know, we should back up on this. I think it's not totally specific in the poor year. So any adrenal nodule or adrenal lesion, if it's over four centimeters, that is concerning for something that could be malignant. So if something is over four centimeters, it's around 70% malignant excluding adrenal myelolipomas, which are easily recognized due to fat, and pheochromocytomas, which are usually recognized biochemically. If it's over six centimeters, it's probably in the neighborhood of 85% malignant. But this is not a malignant adenoma. It's just it's a, a lesion that is malignant once it reaches that size. So it's an atypical feature for an a, a adrenal lesion, but not really a classic feature of an adenoma. Now, Evan, I know that you are a kind of a fan of these uh, atypical adenomas. And, you know, when we are running cases by one another, it's something you often suggest. We were getting very excited about a very heterogeneous, ugly-looking adrenal lesion. You start throwing all the malignancies around, and, you know, you often suggest, well, have you thought about, you know, this being 
a hemorrhagic adenoma or an atypical adenoma. Tell, tell us more about that. There is a uh, radiology article from the folks uh, uh, at ARIP. It was known as the AFIP back then, published in 1999. And it's when all these radiologists, you know, said we can't exclude malignancy. And the title of the article was Large Degenerated Adrenal Adenomas. And it, just realize that, you know, based on, you know, foreshadowing CT Hounsou unit analysis and based on uh, chemical shift imaging, we're not going to be able to show the lipid within these lesions. However, you know, usually these patients are worried well. They don't have a known primer. They have no findings of malignancy elsewhere. And once again, to quote Mick Jagger, if you have time on your side and we can show that, you know, there's a paucity of rapid growth, um, <laughs> then I think, you, you know, we might be able to, you know, sit back and observe, and that's when they're less than four centimeters. Depending on the literature, when things get between four and five centimeters, that's where it's a gray zone. And most endocrine surgeons agree that if you have a mass five centimeters or greater, unless you as a radiologist can definitively say, look, this is an adrenal cyst or this is an adrenal myelolipoma, uh, they're likely going to resect it because uh, the likelihood of adrenal cortical carcinoma becomes greater once it becomes greater than five centimeters. Now we're going to move on to CT. So we're talking about adrenal adenomas on CT. CT is often the modality which identifies an adrenal mass. Fortunately, density evaluation of an adrenal lesion is highly sensitive and specific, as 70% of adrenal adenomas contain significant intracellular lipid or fat. Lipid-poor adenomas are more difficult to diagnose as the CT density increases and approaches that of soft tissue. For lipid-poor lesions, the contrast washout rate can be calculated using a CT adrenal protocol. So adenomas that typically have rapid contrast washout, whereas non-adenomas tend to wash out more slowly. So I'm going to break away here and just comment on this. I think sometimes um, the value of CT adrenal protocols is sometimes misunderstood. The point of it is trying to differentiate the benign from the metastases. You know, it's trying to separate things that wash out quickly, and those can be multiple other things. We'll get into that. And things that wash out slowly tend to be met. So I don't know, Evan, is that kind of how you think about them? It's kind of met versus no met? Right. With There are going to be three exceptions we can talk about that uh, do show washout that mimic the adrenal adenomas. But if you don't have washout, you might want to think about metastatic disease or malignancy. There are different protocols to your CT adrenal protocol, and some controversy exists as to which protocol is the best. A five or 10 minute protocol may be more suitable for busy CT lists. However, there is evidence that a 15 minute post-contrast protocol has better diagnostic accuracy. I think that's an interesting comment because I um, sort of in my training and in my reading of the literature here, I kind of thought that the five to 10 minute protocols were sort of put to bed. I know that they had been investigated, but I found that the accuracy in differentiating the whole metastasis versus other lesion was just not good enough with five to 10 minute protocol. Have you sort of encountered any literature to the contrary? Yeah, I think in an ideal world, right? If we're actually sitting by the CT scanner and we're able to very quickly do the calculation uh, after, you know, after let's say five or 10 minutes and we actually knew, ah, we obtained washout, we have decent uh, negative predictive value, we can let the patient go. Where if we didn't reach that threshold, maybe, you know, wait another five minutes and get to 15 minutes scan. But, uh, you know, in my opinion, if we're going to do the exam, we should do it once, we should do it right. And I, I think it's probably worth you know, the, you know, we already had some sort of indeterminate prior examination. Uh, I think we should do the best 
best exam possible. And I think the 15 minute delayed is probably worth it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be great if we could shorten it. I think it's 15 minutes is a long, long time, but got to keep it accurate so we don't bring them back again. Totally agree. So non-contrast imaging on CT, less than zero Hounsfield units is considered 47% sensitive, but 100% specific for an adrenal adenoma. And if it's less than 10 Hounsfield units, it's considered 71% sensitive, but 98% specific. That's not bad. 98% specific, less than 10 Hounsfield units. Now with washout imaging, the idea is that 15 minutes post-contrast, if it is shows 60% absolute washout or 40% relative washout, that is indicative of an adrenal adenoma because those wash out more quickly. And just as Evan was alluding to here, it is important to note that pheochromocytomas and hypervascular metastases may show identical washout values, particularly those from renal cell carcinoma and hepatocellular carcinoma. An alternative diagnosis to adrenal adenomas must be considered when there's a value greater than 120 Hounsfield units on the portal venous phase, particularly in cases with a prior history of neoplasm. So I know that Hounsfield unit cutoff in the portal venous phase can sometimes be a little controversial. I don't, Evan, what do you tend to use? That article was quoting a 120, but then again, you know, what's your volume of contrast? What was the rate of the contrast? You know, what's your KVP, et cetera, et cetera. But I do use 120 and I think twice, particularly uh, pheochromocytomas are notorious for enhancing greater than 120. And that's one of the three examples. They actually have washout kinetics and mimic an adrenal cortical adenoma. Right. It's also interesting, you know, that both clear cell renal cell carcinoma and certain subtypes of HCC have lipid. And there are reported cases where when you get a metastasis to the adrenal gland, it can actually mimic an adenoma on chemical shift imaging on MRI, which I think it's interesting that these are also the exceptions to the rule that might show washout kinetics that mimic an adrenal adenoma on your delayed CT. And we're going to come back to that a little more, but I think you've hit on a really important point is that if just try to see if the patient has a history of renal cell carcinoma or polycellular carcinoma, that sort of changes your approach to these adrenal nodules. Got to get your pretest probability correct. And before we move on to your particular area of expertise and excellence, and that is MRI, I figured I would stop and just ask you another question. And that is, have you got a favorite anatomic variant? Hmm. Favorite anatomic variant. I love teaching first-year residents uh, anatomy on, on CT and MRI. And I love teaching them, you know, where does the right renal artery course relative to the IVC? And the answer is posterior. But it winds up uh, the majority of inferior accessory right renal arteries actually course anterior to the IVC. And I just like pointing that out. And it, it uh, Don't ask me why, but as a diagnostic radiologist, that sort of uh, floats my boat when I see that on a daily basis. That is really cool. Actually, I did not know that. It must have to do with a really complex embryology of the IVC. You know what? I just thought of something else. I'm sorry. You have two variants. I just thought of this with the adrenal. Oh, yeah. You know, there's circumaortic and retroaortic left renal veins. Circumaortic are three times as common. But something cool happens when you have a retroaortic left renal vein. And I won't quiz you, Matt, but what happens is you have a really good chance of finding the left adrenal vein. Because it's got to get home somehow, right, to the heart. And you, whenever you have a retroartic left renal vein, oftentimes you can see on CT the 
tiny little left adrenal vein going into a nubbin of, should we just call it a continuation between the SMA and the aorta to the IVC? Because uh, none of the kidney drains into it, but the adrenal has its own exit uh, to the IVC. Very cool. Fascinating. Let's move on now to MRI. Actually, before we do that, can I do a shout out for an article, please? You may. What happens if on a non-con image, you have an adrenal lesion with a Hounsell unit of greater than 10? And I really, whenever I lecture on the adrenal gland, I, I just really want to give a shout out to Dr. Song Chaudhry and Mayo Smith. They were at Brand at that time. And they published an article in AGR in November 2007 and basically found 321 lesions in patients who had non-con CTs, house units of greater than 10, and they followed them for years. Not a single one of them was malignant. So if you have a worried well patient who doesn't have a known malignancy, uh, patients with unknown primaries with no metastatic disease do not present with adrenal nodules of Hounsell units greater than 10. And during the years and years of follow-up, when a certain number of these, I think it was uh, 312 patients, uh, developed cancer, none of those adrenal nodules turned out to be METs. So I, I think it's important to understand Bayes' theorem and the a priori probability that someone has you know, an adrenal metastasis by looking at the history and maybe just leaving some of these adrenal incidentalomas alone, even if their non-con is greater than 10. When I talk about this with residents, I show them a little pie chart showing likelihood of malignancy versus uh, benignancy of an incidental adrenal lesion is just, you can barely see the little, in the pie chart, barely see the little red slice of malignancy here. It's really important to get the pretest probability correct to 1,000% agree. So let's talk about the MRI. Sure. Okay. So MRI starts with maybe your favorite sequence. I don't know what your favorite sequence is, but I'm guessing it might be chemical shift imaging. So we start with chemical shift imaging. And chemical shift imaging is the most reliable for diagnosis, especially when CT findings are equivocal. Because of the high sensitivity of chemical shift MR imaging to minute amounts of intravoxel, i.e. intracellular, fat, MR imaging demonstrates signal dropout on opposed phase images in the majority of adenomas and a drop in signal intensity of greater than 16.5% is considered diagnostic for an adenoma. What do you think about that? That's a high bar. And I think they talk about this percentage of signal drop maybe based on older literature when in-phase and opposed-phase images might have been attained in a different breath hold, and we used to do ratios relative to spleen. But let's do some very quick middle school mathematics, Matt. Let's just do something more intuitive, which is the liver and steatosis. It winds up the mark between normal and abnormal for steatosis if you have greater than 5% lipid in uh, your hepatocytes. So pretend we have an individual with 5% lipid and 95% water. So all things being equal on the in-phase image, it'll be 100, 95 plus 5. Opposed phase image, it'll be 90, because in an ideal world, the 5% of the lipid will annihilate 5% of the water. So you have a 10% drop. And that's what I use every day when I'm trying to figure out if semi-quantitatively somebody has steatosis. And you'll see, if you practice this on a daily basis, you'll see it's it's pretty easy to see a 10% drop. So I use the same thing. If I have greater than a 10% drop, I think about the liver and I say, look, I know 
that there's, you know, intracellular lipid within the cells that are making up this lesion in the adrenal, thus establishing it as being adrenal cortical in origin. So I would even give a lower bar and say greater than 10% loss. Do you think it makes sense to sort of vary your cutoff based on the strength of your magnet? Sometimes I've seen people talk about the difference between a 1.5 and a 3T magnet. You have different cutoffs. It starts to seem like it gets a little uh, difficult to, to pick out. Right. Just a reminder to our, our listening audience, please, please, please remember this. If you're doing an in-phase and opposed phase image at 3T, you have to make sure that the opposed phase echo time is shorter than the in-phase echo time. That way you will absolutely know if there's loss of signal intensity between the in-phase and the opposed phase. It is because of this interactions between lipid and water and not because of T2 star effects. Some magnets out of the box, you ask to run it in and out of phase without doing some manipulations of the sequence, it'll give you an in-phase image of 2.2 milliseconds and an opposed phase image of 3.3, not 1.1, in which case you're not going to be sure why you had signal loss on the opposed phase, whether it's because of lipid water interactions or because of susceptibility effects. As long as you haven't optimized in and out of phase, there's been work done at Merkel when he was at uh, Duke, probably 1.5 is the sweetest spot, but I think uh, 3T is adequate as well. So, you know, after all this technical talk, there's kind of an interesting next line here in the article. It says, that then rather than measuring the signal, one can compare the adenoma in the in and out of phase with images windowed identically, and a visible loss of signal is diagnostic of an adenoma. Do we get fooled on that, or is that rule of thumb seem like it would work? It should work. Sometimes you get fooled, uh, for example, in, in patients that might have iron in the, in the liver and the spleen, your eye might get fooled. But as long as you have the images mag, you have the exact same window and level, and you are comfortable, you have the adrenals lined up on the two images, I think it works. But look, we talk about your life is worth pen medicine, Matt. I think I'm willing to take the extra 17 seconds to, to put the ROIs on. But I've read that article as well. And as long as you have everything matched up, you can probably make the same assumption. The next sentence is, do not use the liver as a reference, as it can change in signal between in and out of phase imaging, depending on the presence of hemochromatosis or hepatic steatosis. Correct. Right. As MRIs are usually performed to help define indeterminate adrenal lesions seen on CT, the sensitivity and specificity depend on the CT density. MRI is useful for adrenal masses with an attenuation less than 30 Hounsfield units. So signal dropout on an out-of-phase imaging for you know, the range 10 to 30 Hounsfield units is 89% sensitive and 100% specific. On 10 to 20 Hounsfield units, it's better. It's 100% sensitive and 100% specific. Actually, you can't get any better than that, can you? So I think that this is an important point because I know sometimes people, are, especially trainees, are confused about what should I recommend for follow-up for something that I see on a you know, routine portal venous phase CT out of the ED. There's an adrenal nodule. Uh, what should I recommend? Should I recommend CT adrenal protocol or MRI? And it, I think it's useful to know that MRI kind of has a sweet spot where it's really, really accurate. Right. But Matt, just to clarify, those Hounsfield units are for pre-con, unenhanced CT. Yeah, no, that's, that's thank you. Yeah, so if you use a non-con in the ED, right. And conversely, though we don't have the data, if you have something like greater than 45 Hounsfield units on a non-con CT, you know, doing chemical shift MRI is probably not worth it, right? We're not going to be able to see lipid because there is no lipid because it would have been probably 30 or less. So just something to consider. But then again, I want us to, you know, remember, you know, the work out of Brown from November 2007, because if this is a worried well patient without a known malignancy, 
then the reason to do additional imaging would just be to make sure, I don't know, that the patient doesn't have a pheochromocytoma because it's not going to be a metastasis. And then following this, fat-containing metastases, e.g. hepatocellular carcinoma, renal cell carcinoma, can demonstrate loss of signals similar to adenomas. And malignant adrenal lesions also demonstrate restricted diffusion. You sort of mentioned that earlier about the HCC and the RCC. Right. I'm a splitter with this, Matt. Split away. When I think of fat, I think of adipocytes. And I like to talk about lipid. So these are actually lipid-containing metastases. This is not metastatic liposarcoma or metastatic germ cell neoplasm of the uh, testes or ovaries. So the lipid within these metastases are intracellular for the uh, HCCs and the clear cell RCCs. And probably an advanced topic, but I, I probably make this diagnosis once every four months. You occasionally have something called myelolipomatous metaplasia to a degenerated adrenal adenoma, which actually presents as little foci of bulk fat. But anyway, these two lipid-containing metastases can mimic an adenoma on chemical shift MRI and washout CT kinetics. Now, I'm glad you brought that up because this is often a lesion that kind of fools people when they're, I wouldn't say fools so much as they don't know what to do with it. And so they see this adrenal nodule, it has some bulk fat, but it really doesn't look like enough to be a myelolipoma. So I think he's just an atypical myelolipoma. Like, what is this? I've, I kind of find that most folks just lean on it being an atypical myelolipoma. But like you say, it can be fat developing within an adrenal adenoma. Right. I have seen a couple of people on the lecture circuit show examples of things that they called myelolipomas, which aren't. If you look at the surgical path literature, and I'm going to paraphrase, that on typical myelolipomas, the amount of fat within the lesion is greater than 50%. Yeah, I've heard that too. It's sort of a way to sort of differentiate between the two. Right. And where you have these uh, foci of fat that are maybe, you know, 5% of the lesion by volume, uh, think about myelolipomatous metaplasia. Excellent. But can I add one other thing, Matt, before we go on? Oh, please, please do. The last line under MRI about malignant adrenal lesions demonstrate restricted diffusion. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you know, two papers, one by Frank Miller from Northwestern, showed that there is significant overlap between the ADC maps of adenomas and METs. Mm. So that should not be the be-all and end-all of how we differentiate between benign and malignant. So unfortunately, the ADC value is ADC map is not going to be the answer. That is excellent. Thank you for pointing that out. So let's talk about treatment and prognosis. So small adrenal masses with manifestations of hormonal excess require resection, as do large, which they define as greater than three to five centimeter, non-functioning adrenal mass lesions, as they are considered potentially malignant, see adrenal carcinoma. And the, the rate of malignancy is um, not linear, which is kind of interesting. Once it gets bigger and bigger, the, the rate of uh, malignancy goes up in sort of an exponential manner. Four centimeters is the rate of that 50 to 60% level. But six centimeters is 85%. The bigger it gets, the more malignant it is. Right. All right. A small adrenal lesion with typical features of an adenoma and without biochemical abnormality can be safely left in situ. Some studies demonstrate that up to 40% of adenomas may grow, and approximately 10% have been shown to resolve. So that's interesting, the disappearing adenoma. Matt, can I give one other shout out? It's sort of an advanced topic. It had to do with the first paragraph. Yeah, um, absolutely. I want to give a shout out to my IR colleagues. That first line that says, manifestations hormonal excess require resection. So let's talk about this, guys. I want to specifically talk about Kahn syndrome. There, there are two types of uh, things that cause aldosterone excess, right? There's the single aldosterone-producing adenoma, and there's bilateral adrenal hyperplasia. And 
you don't want to do an adrenalectomy on someone who has the bilateral hyperfunctioning adrenal hyperplasia. It's less morbidity to simply have them go on antihypertensive medicines for life. The problem is, right, adenomas are so common in the general population that I think it behooves us, and uh, this is the, the going literature, that before somebody does a laparoscopic adrenalectomy, they should do adrenal venous sampling to prove that the renin and the aldosterone lateralizes to the side where we're seeing the adenoma. There are cases that actually, amazing cases out of the Mayo Clinic where it was actually the other side that was hyperfunctioning and not the side where they saw, let's say, a demonstrable 12 millimeter adenoma, that it really was a smaller non-detectable adenoma within the contralateral adrenal gland. So uh, just to consider for Kahn's syndrome, for Cushing's, you know, if the endocrinologist, advanced topic, but figures out that the cause of the uh, Cushing's and the elevated cortisol is from a cortisol-producing adenoma, most people say, you don't have to go in and do sampling. You can safely do the laparoscopic adrenalectomy. But for Kahn syndrome, it probably behooves us to do adrenal venous sampling. No, that's excellent. Thank you. And the last sentence from this section is, in patients with a known malignancy, approximately 50% of nonspecific adrenal nodules will represent adrenal adenomas. And uh, I don't know what numbers you've encountered here, but actually I think that's probably higher than that. I've encountered uh, some numbers saying around, probably around 75% will end up being adenomas just because they're so common. Correct. Yep. And Matt, I have another pearl that uh, was taught to me by one of our oncologists I like to share with our listening audience. People might have personally known or taken care of or did imaging interpretations on patients who are not doing well, who have widespread metastatic cancer. And sometimes these patients have low energy, low affect, they're depressed they're not eating, they're miserable. But I just want everybody to remember that some of these patients who have bilateral adrenal metastases may have an equivalent of Addison's disease and actually have adrenal hypofunction and they're Addisonian and that's contributing to their depressed mood, depressed energy and depressed affect. So experienced oncologists know that sometimes if uh, they see someone that has adrenal metastasis along with other metastatic disease, they actually can give steroid replacement therapy and these patients actually feel much better. So something to consider when you uh, want to do quote unquote clinical correlation when you have a patient who's not doing well <laughs> with widespread metastatic disease. Excellent point. And now let's move on to differential diagnosis. So let's run through this. Consider other adrenal lesions when you're looking at an adenoma. So this, basically this whole article has been about differential diagnosis. We'll run through it here. So one thing you would consider is adrenal cortical carcinoma. I think that's the thing everybody's afraid of, but incredibly rare. And they tend to present in a much larger size. There are two subtypes, Matt, we can talk about. As you said, these are rare, one a million a year. And the two subtypes are those that are non-hyperfunctioning versus hyperfunctioning. Those who are non-hyperfunctioning present with a, an average size of around 13 centimeters. Why? Just like the size of other retroperitoneal malignancies. They have to get that big before they result in localized mass effect, before patients feel you know, poorly defined deep abdominal pain. Those that are hyperfunctioning, they're more fortunate. They usually present with an average size of around seven centimeters, and they tend to have a better prognosis. The key is, can the surgeon go in and get clean surgical margins? So when we're imaging these patients that have these large adrenal masses, you know, think about adjacent structures. Are they involved or not? Is the posterior pancreatic body or tail involved? Is the greater curvature of the stomach involved? Is the upper pole of the ipsilateral kidney involved, et cetera, et cetera? Because we want to make sure that they get clean margins at the time of surgery. Great point. And the other thing to let you know, sometimes pathologists scratch their heads when they have an adrenal cortical neoplasm. They're trying to decide whether it actually is a benign adenoma or an adrenal cortical carcinoma. There are two 
pathology systems that your local pathologist may use. One is called the Weiss score. The other is the Helsinki score. But sometimes pathologists really have to think about it and look at these multiple histologic features uh, before they can uh, figure out whether something is benign or malignant. So uh, sometimes these degenerated adrenal cortical adenomas are called adrenal cortical neoplasms of low malignant potential, which in my opinion means they're, they're not cancer. And uh, uh, But sometimes just want everybody to know, pathologists can have a tough time when looking under the microscope. Not always a slam dunk or an open Correct. goal, open goal or whatever your favorite sport is here. The next on the differential diagnosis is pheochromocytoma. A little note here, it says significant overlap in CT findings with adrenal adenomas with the two unable to be reliably differentiated on CT adrenal washout studies. When do you think about suggesting going for biochemical testing on these, Evan? Once again, if I'm reading a CT, something that's very hypervascular, and on the MRI findings, you know, no lipid on chemical shift, high signal intensity on T2, hypervascularity. And then if you have one of the syndromes where you have to have a lower threshold, such as neurofibromatosis von Hippelindau, or as you mentioned before, Matt, uh, the MAN2A and 2B uh, syndromes. And also, if you think about, you know, the, the symptoms of FIO, it's sort of sad that, you know, many patients are being treated for, you know, episodic headaches by neurologists or being treated by uh, social workers and psychotherapists because they have panic attacks and are being treated by their internists because of high blood pressure. And sometimes people don't think about pheochromocytomas. And if you look at the historical literature, it's amazing how many back when we used to do more autopsies, how many of these things were found at autopsy and how you could have prevented a lot of significant morbidity during a patient's lifetime if you can actually diagnose this and remove it. Next on the differential is adrenal metastasis. Then on the next on the differential is focal adrenal granulomatous disease. Have you encountered this before? No, I think just when reading CT, like everybody else, sometimes we see inactive granulomatous disease when we see relatively hypoplastic uh, calcified adrenal glands. Mm-hmm. Personally, have not seen focal active granulomatous disease. And then the final one on the listed differential here is adrenal myelolipoma. And we already kind of went over some tricks on how you differentiate an adrenal adenoma with bulk fat versus a myelolipoma. Any other thoughts on additional entities for the differential? Or? Just one, uh, one good piece of trivia. You know, myelolipomas have, uh, you know, adipocytes and bone marrow cells. That there's a subtype of patients that actually after long bone fractures, we all know about fat emboli, but sometimes you get bone marrow emboli to the adrenal glands and it's an acquired subtype of adrenal myelolipoma, which is interesting. That is really interesting. <laughs> I did not know that. So that's our list for the differential. Anything you want to add in there? Just one rare exception. I just wanted to point this out. Pretend we had a unilocular adrenal cyst. I'm pretending. Think about the halcyon units. It's going to be less than 20. Yes. It may be less than 20, but it's actually not an adenoma. If you do chemical shift imaging, there's going to be no loss of signal intensity on chemical shift. So here's where you actually just use a routine, heavily T2-weighted image to show, oh yeah, it's just made up of fluid. So rare adrenal cyst, the most common cause of an adrenal cyst is an adrenal pseudocyst, which they claim is pre-existing hemorrhage that then resolved into a seroma within either a normal adrenal gland or a gland that actually had a benign adrenal adenoma within it. You know, I've actually seen those cysts confused on CT adrenal washout protocol. It makes sense, but it's kind of a, a silly reason is that is if you put the ROI region of interest, if you put the ROI on the cyst and you measure it through the three phases, there's going to be a little bit of variation. And so if you plug those variant numbers into a calculator, it may actually be enough right. 
to give you a, a percentage drop right? a washout. But it's really, if you look at the absolute numbers, it's like five, three, two. And you're like, that's um, definitely not enhancing. So that's right. just, a, I guess, a little practical point to make, look at the absolute numbers of your adrenal washout protocol. And speaking of which, we're going to move on to practical points. This is the last section in adrenal adenoma article. And so the first point is attenuation measurements should have an ROI covering two-thirds of the lesion and excluding calcifications and the periphery of the lesion to avoid volume averaging. Right. I just remember a story of somebody had a large necrotic adrenal metastasis with liquefactive necrosis. And, you know, the resident who was working on the paper, he was one of the blinded readers, was trying to be optimistic. So he put the ROI where he saw the cystic portion got less than 20. Well, no, you need you need to, once again, avoid the calcium in the periphery, but you got to get the overall meat of the, meat of the uh, lesion. None of these, like, you know, two voxel ROIs. Next practical point, small, less than three centimeter, homogeneous and low density, less than 10 Hounsfield unit, are leave-alone lesions. Unless the patient has rip-roaring hypertension, then we can actually ultimately find out if they have Cushing's or Kahn's. But otherwise, in a worried, well, normotensive patient, we should leave them alone. Boom. Point three, lesions with attenuation values greater than 20 to 30 Hounsfield units on non-contrast CT are unlikely to be shown as adenomas on chemical shift MRI and may rather benefit from a dynamic contrast CT study. And would also benefit by reviewing the 2007 paper out of Brown, noting if they do not have a history of malignancy, this is not going to represent metastatic disease. And would also benefit from reviewing the outside study from five years ago that showed it there and unchanged in size. (laughs) Right. Another joke I make, Matt, is when people ask me in tumor boards, when should we get the follow-up? I say, I want to follow up in 20 years. (laughs) And when they show up after 20 years, we give them a big hug and we all celebrate all the money all the savings we did to the healthcare system because we didn't have to do the uh, the 19 follow-up examinations. I love it. Practical point number four, if greater than 100, 120 Hounsfield units on the portal venous phase, the washout value should be ignored as the lesion is most likely a hypervascular metastasis or pheochromocytoma rather than a lipid-poor adenoma. Agree. But once again, you know, we have access to the EMR. We have access to all the other cross-sectional images, and if this patient doesn't have a known primary that can give rise to a hypervascular metastasis, then it's likely a pheo or maybe an adenoma that didn't read the textbook. Even more likely than, you know, initially uncovering a, once again, you know, a hypervascular adrenal metastasis in someone with an unknown primary, and that was basically the tip of the iceberg and we didn't know. Yeah, and I think I should mention too that there is overlap between hypervascular adenomas and pheochromocytomas. They do overlap at that range. So it's really a sensitivity specificity thing. If you have something that's enhancing to 140 Hounsfield units, you're way more on the side of pheo than uh, hypervascular adenoma. But when you're in the 120 range, there is non-trivial overlap. We get these cases all the time where we thought they were pheo, but then they end up being just a hypervascular adenoma. But the biochemical testing is really the thing that will differentiate the two. And I think it's totally reasonable if you're at 120 Huntsville units to suggest maybe some biochemical testing is the way to go. Yep, agree. Practical point five, be aware that HCC, hepatocellular carcinoma, and RCC, renal cell carcinoma, may contain intracellular fat, and therefore their metastases may mimic adenoma. Evan, have you ever seen a papillary renal cell carcinoma metastasized to the adrenal? I've seen a couple, and this is an interesting uh, philosophical comment, Matt. If you have something that has direct extension to the adrenal gland, 
is that metastatic disease? And I think with the TNM staging, they say it is, where I would say, nah, if you had an exophytic upper lesion that directly engulfed the adrenal, it's just local invasion. But in my, in my mind's eye, thinking about all the cases, I think the majority have been clear cells. Very nice. And speaking of philosophy here, last question to you, and that is, have you got any one-line philosophy or mantra that you live by? I guess there's two. My favorite uh, quote for medicine is from Sir William Osler, and I'm paraphrasing, but medicine is the science of uncertainty and the art of probability. Oh, I love that. The second one comes from my favorite Shakespeare play, and we're talking right now in Philadelphia, Matt, and it winds up two local theater companies are both doing Twelfth Night uh, this upcoming month. One of my favorite Shakespeare quotes comes from Sir Toby Belch from Twelfth Night, and I'm going to paraphrase that. Just because thou art virtuous does not mean there shall be no more cakes and ale. I like that quote too. Two quotes to end with. <laughs> Quotation. Excellent. Evan, thank you so much for dropping by and having this chat here. I think a lot of people are going to find your, your comments useful in sort of thinking about adenomas on a day-to-day basis. Any other parting thoughts? May the 4th be with you since this is May 5th <laughs> and we just had May 4th. I love it. Excellent. All right. Well, with that, thank you. And um, until next time. Very good. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Some awesome reading there by Matt Morgan and uh, no paucity of clinical gems thrown in by Evan. Uh, It sounded like Evan got more and more into it as the recording went on with his shout outs to all all the other articles and things. Definitely. I think we have the makings of another podcast regular in Evan. (laughs) Or a podcast duo, Matt and Evan's talk talk abdominal imaging. Uh, Now, do you want to know if you won the Toyota Corolla? Yeah. Yeah, you did. You did. Your logic was 100% correct. With regards to the region of interest one, that was Mm -hmm. actually an area I hadn't actually thought about that before. And I've been known to kind of just measure the adrenal lesion quite a few times, different little areas until I got 10 or less, and then I could say it was an adenoma. (laughs) But um, now I'm going to make sure I measure at least two-thirds of the lesion before I declare that. Statement number two was an absolute washout of greater than 60% on 15-minute delayed CT is suggestive of adrenal adenoma. However, pheos and hypervascular metastases can also have that kind of washout pattern. So that was true. Mm -hmm. Um, And indeed, if a lesion measures greater than 120 Hounsfield units on portal venous phase CT, then you shouldn't really perform a washout. You should ignore the washout um, because that degree of enhancement suggests that it is a pheo or hypervascular met rather than an adenoma. So that's too high a density on a portal venous phase study. And then statement three was the false one. So an incidental adrenal lesion with Hounsfield units, anything really above 20 to 30 Hounsfield units on a, on a non-contrast CT, that's when you can't really rely on chemical shift. It's not really mm. going to be there because there's not enough yep. lipid in it. So it's really in that very small range of those lesions, 10 to 20, 10 to 30, where chemical shift may be able to answer the question a little bit better than a non-contrast CT. Excellent. But really, you know, the dynamic CT is where it's at. If you are going to categorize the lesion further but we've learned a lot in this episode that really size matters a lot um, and that you know the chance of a really small incidental adrenaline lesion being malignant is actually ridiculously small and looking back for old films is probably the best way to handle the situation if you can i mean that size idea is uh is all over the place isn't it we find it with subependable giant cell astrocytomas in tuberous sclerosis where 
it's not the size itself, but that size is a marker of past growth. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a small lesion, it, you know, the likelihood of you having caught a rapidly growing lesion while it is still small is pretty low. Whereas every slowly growing lesion, you're most likely going to catch it when it's still slow. So yep. I like that. It's a, it's a different way of thinking about it. And we've also met the idea many times before in the podcast of pretest probability, you know, and if the patient yes. doesn't have a history of malignancy, then the chance of an incidental adrenal lesion being the first evidence of metastatic disease is absolutely minuscule compared yeah. to it being an adrenal adenoma. Absolutely. That if we ever have uh, merchandise for the podcast, I think uh, something with Bayes' theorem should, should yeah. be on there. <laughs> uh, anything else from this episode you wanted to chat about, Frank? Well, as you know, when I listen to these readfuls, I'm as interested, if perhaps even more interested in the hosts and their little parenthetical sort of comments on how mm-hmm. they practice radiology. And I loved some of the words that Evan and Matt used. Foreshadowed is great. And I can't think of a way I can work that into a report, but I'm, I'm going to try. The other one that was uh, mentioned was detritus, which I can't use in a report because I can't help but think of detritus the troll from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. Have you read any of those? I haven't, no. Uh, Now it's uh, the podcast uh, book recommendation corner now. (laughs) Terry Pratchett, Discworld. No, no. It says in the intro that we we don't talk about books, we talk about radiology. Oh, that's a shame. (laughs) What about audio (laughs) books? Okay, yeah, yeah. But I do have some words that... I do use in radiology reports that I don't think I use anywhere else that are not specifically medical, like uh, subjacent and nestled. I find myself using those two quite frequently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the basilar artery is nestled into the cerebellar pontine angle or something like that. Do you have any of those kind of... Related to this idea, I probably shouldn't share this, but there's a little game I sometimes play with our neuroradiology fellows, particularly back during COVID when the, all the meetings were done over Zoom. Mm-hmm. And I would give the fellow a list, like a bingo list, a grid of nine words <laughs> that he had to throw into the meeting at some point. So there'd be things like engorged, uh, you know, <laughs> flocculus. I've said that's one of my favorite words. So he'd have this list of nine words. And during the meeting, he had to slowly tick them all off. He had to try oh, and work them that's in. A fantastic and he was amazing. Idea. There was one meeting where he managed to do every single word in the first case. <laughs> and he was like, and you can see that the mass is, well, it's it's nowhere near the flocculus and uh, you can see the vessels are not engorged. <laughs> it was amazing. It was like one sentence. He ticked off all the words and no one knows. No one knows. And we're just in the background laughing. <laughs> oh, that's genius. I shouldn't really admit to that one. It's not very professional. But no no patients were harmed or neurosurgeons harmed. And in uh, the, some, in the some words were learnt, no doubt. <laughs> words were learnt. <laughs> Do you catch yourself ever using um, radiology terminology in everyday life? Like I find myself using it particularly when it's um, relative position of things. I'll say, oh, right, yeah. oh, you know, the toilet is medial to the <laughs> to the wall or that no, I- light bulb is hyper intense or something like that. No, but I do sometimes when I'm looking at a photo of people, right, and you've yeah. got to describe who's on the right and on the left, I get mixed up because I'm thinking about <laughs> radiology images and I'm like, oh, right, left, oh, uh, that's, that's where I struggle. <laughs> I struggle with left and right all the time regardless of radiology. So, <laughs> Yeah, I see my kids doing that thing where they hold their hand up above their face to work out which is left and which is right. Um, we better wrap this episode up. Frank, how can people get in contact with us? 
Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Drixen. And you can also email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and or feedback. If you uh, want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to all our online content and courses, but also our upcoming conference. July 24 to 28, uh, get registered. Uh, it's free for all access pass holders and in 125 low and middle income countries. And for everyone else, we have tiered pricing options based on your country and also whether you're a doctor or a non-doctor. So check it out. And what else can people do, Frank? And of course, you can help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. All right. Well, I better sign off here. Here are the keys to your new Toyota Corolla, Frank. (laughs) You get a car. You get a car. You you get a car. car. We all get a car. (laughs) And we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay rad, everyone. Stay rad. Beep, beep. (laughs) 